Thanks, Michael. Yeah, stay there. Keep the soap opera open in front of you. In Genesis 29, <clears throat> one of the things about um, going back to the beginning in the book of Genesis and looking at these foundational chapters is it helps us to think about the foundations of our faith and how it is that we view reality uh, from God's perspective in the scriptures. Uh, all of us have a worldview. We all look at reality through a particular lens, through particular categories, and your worldview is shaped by your answer to certain big picture questions. What is life all about? What happens when I die? What does it mean to be a human being? And the thing about going back to Genesis is uh, God's word helps us to kind of lift our eyes, to expand our worldview, to anchor it in his character, in, in his promises, and to see how it plays out in practice. Uh, and one of the things that I love about it is that we see in God's sovereign goodness and his providential care for his people that he is the God of the big picture and the minutiae as well. Here he is working out his plans and purposes for his historical people. Here we have the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel through whom thousands of years later the Lord Jesus would come. God is working out a very big picture plan in his world and yet he is involved and he cares about the very minute details of how these children are born into this um, family of promise and the way in which this family relates dysfunctionally to one another. And so we get to see that as we, uh, un as we unpack this passage together. Uh, when you're thinking about those big picture questions of what shapes your worldview, how you view reality and what you think life is all about, one of the key things you've got to think is what do I have to say? What does my worldview mean when I'm standing at the bedside of a dying friend or at the graveside of a loved one I've lost? Do the answers I have to those big questions offer real comfort and certain hope? Not in some kind of glib or trite way that's kind of um, extending platitudes in the time of crisis, something to lean upon despite reality, but in a real meaningful way that speaks to reality, that speaks to the reality of suffering and death in this world, and our desire for comfort and hope. Um, I've sat with dozens of grieving families and individuals who have lost loved ones. And I've conducted dozens of funerals where the two big questions just keep coming at you. Is God there? And does God care? Is God there and does God care? They're two very big worldview questions. And the Bible gives you a resounding answer. Yes, he is there. And yes, he does care. Now, it's interesting, I was thinking about this earlier in the week, not expecting Her Majesty the Queen to pass away. Uh, and I was reminded last night, watching the Dean of Sydney on ABC News, who pointed us back to the Queen's one and only Easter message. 
in 70 years. We all loved her Christmas messages every year. She only gave one Easter message. What year was it? 2020, COVID. This is what she said. Listen to the Queen's Easter message. She said, Easter isn't cancelled. Indeed, we need Easter as much as ever. As darkness falls on the Saturday before Easter Day, many Christians would normally light candles together. It's a way of showing how the good news of Christ's resurrection has been passed on from the first Easter by every generation until now. The discovery of the risen Christ on that first Easter day gave his followers new hope and fresh purpose. And we can all take heart from this. As dark as death can be, particularly for those suffering with grief, light and life are greater. May the living flame of the Easter hope be a steady guide as we face the future. So said the Queen in Easter 2020. And it is that fresh purpose, it is that new hope, it is that steady guide and sure and certain anchor that as Christians we have in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. And even in this dysfunctional soap opera episode that we have in front of us tonight, we see the shape of the Gospel and the pointers that take us even to the cross of Christ. That is God there and does God care? Yes. He is there in his big picture purposes and plans. And he cares even in the minute details of how people are feeling as they experience life in a broken and dysfunctional world. I want us to see that tonight as we look at uh, the way this passage shows us the action of God in the midst of these 11 sons and one daughter being born to the family of promise. It starts with saying that God sees. It continues by saying that it's God who gives. And it finishes by saying that God remembers. God sees and he gives and he remembers. So let's go first with God sees. Why don't you pick it up with me at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Remember where we finished last week, where Jacob had gone to, to Laban's home and he had married, after being there for seven years, he had been deceived into marrying Leah, whom he didn't love, but he sought to marry Rachel, whom he did love. And here we see that um, picture unfolding of how these, <clears throat> this re- these relationships continue to unfold. And we said at the end of last week that unloved Leah uh, and her maid Zilpah will give birth between them to eight of the twelve tribes of Israel. Leah would be the mother of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Judah, Issachar and Zebulun, despised Leah. Unloved Leah, she would be the hereditary mother of the kingly tribe of Judah and the priestly tribe of Levi, which makes her offspring 
Moses, David, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a great picture of God working and maybe even thriving through human failure. We were reminded in the midst of all of this chaos that the ladder of heaven, remember from some weeks ago, that it's still in operation, that the angels are descending and ascending on the ladder between heaven and earth. God is at work. The commerce of heaven is being worked out on earth even when we cannot see it. Is God there? Yes. And does he care? Yes. An unloved Leah, the disadvantaged, the marginalised, the humble, he provides this enormous blessing. The blessing of children, yes. The blessing of the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel through whom his plans and purposes for the universe would be worked out. But Rachel remained childless. As God saw that Leah was not loved, he gave her the gift of children. But poor Leah, every time she gives birth to a son, she thinks, maybe? Will my husband love me now? It's a heartbreaking picture, isn't it? A woman in a loveless marriage, thinking that somehow these children, these sons would change the heart of her husband. She gives birth to Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Maybe now he'll attach to me. Maybe now he will love me. It's not until she gets to Judah, the fourth son, that you see her turn away from herself and her husband and actually give thanks to God. Have a look at verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Am I in the place of God? Am I the one who gives life? At least Jacob recognises that. He's extremely passive in this whole episode, but at least here he recognises he's passive for a reason. He can't give life. He can't command for his wife to bear children. And just as an aside, isn't it helpful to see here that the grass isn't greener on the other side? Because it's possible to sit back and look at Leah and say, poor old Leah, she was unloved, but she had all these children. An enormous blessing. So surely she's fine. But she's not. She's miserable. Because she longs for the love of her husband. And Rachel, who has the love of her husband, she's the gorgeous one. Well, she must have the perfect life. She's gorgeous. She has a a, a doting husband who's obsessed with her. And she's miserable too. 
because what she longs for, what she doesn't have, are the children that her sister Leah is having. Do you see how from both angles, both women are miserable because they're, they're both looking for something that they don't have? The grass is not greener on the other side. But as they wrestle with what they do not have and what God can only give them, as happens week after week in this journey through the book of Genesis, instead of them humbly turning themselves back to God and seeking to entrust themselves to his plans and purposes and his sovereign care, they try to take matters into their own hands. That always works well. It's another week where people are grasping at the blessing of God where they're seeking to, to shape God into their image and to achieve God's plans and purposes in their way, on their timeline, with their resources, instead of trusting that it is God who gives. It is God who provides. It is God who brings life. So verse 4, Rachel, desperate for children... She gives her servant Bilhah as a wife to Jacob. Jacob sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant and she gives birth to a son. Rachel's like, I'm vindicated. He's listened to my plea. I'll name him Dan. Then Bilhah conceives again and she has Naphtali. And Rachel, once again, I have a great struggle with my sister and I have won. And when Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now he's got four wives. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, what good fortune, so she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, how happy am I? The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And by women... I think she means Rachel. And it's kind of sarcastic. She's looking at her sister. You will call me happy because I have another son. Cop that, Rachel. It's 6 2. And then into the picture comes little toddler Reuben, who's wandering out into the fields and he finds some mandrake plants. And he brings them to his mother, to Leah. And it's a picture, I think, of Reuben not really understanding what he's doing. He's just like, hey, look, look what I found. Mandrake plants. And as we all know, <laughs> mandrake plants, it's the great fertility drug of the Mesopotamian world. This is the wonder drug. This is the thing that will get you pregnant if you... If you think back to our time in the Song of Songs, it's the mandrake plants, it's the, um, the pomegranates that are all in the windows around here. There's fruitfulness, there's fertility. Again, if I can just have the drugs, I'll be able to achieve my own plans and purposes. And so they use them as this bartering tool. They're like coins in the gambling uh, in their gambling for children. But isn't it ironic that it's not the woman who has the mandrake 
plants. It's not the woman on the wonder drugs who ends up then becoming pregnant. Rachel sleeps with Jacob. Sorry, Leah sleeps with Jacob and gives Rachel the mandrake plants. But Leah, without the mandrake plants, ends up becoming pregnant with Issachar and Zebulun. Have a look at verse 17 in chapter 30. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah says, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I have borne him six sons. How many sons do I have to give you, Jacob, before you'll honour me, before you'll treat me with dignity, before you'll love me? How many sons? In that sad picture, the thing that she does recognise is it's God who gives the precious gift of life. It is God who gives the children. And sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Highly unusual that Dinah turns up in this list of children being born. But there's a seed being sown. Foreshadowing, there's a story coming. A very sad story. In chapter 34 with Dinah. But it's after Leah has recognised that it's God who gives the gift. It's after Rachel has realised there's nothing to do with mandrakes, it's nothing to do with her resources, that we then read in verse 22 that God remembers Rachel. God remembers Rachel. God remembered Noah back in chapter 8 and the floodwaters receded. God remembered Abraham in chapter 19 and rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus chapter 2, God will remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and will rescue his people from slavery. God's remembering, it's not like he is walking down the aisle of the supermarket and then suddenly remembers, oh, I need milk and bread. Oh, that's right, Rachel's just sitting there waiting. Oh, quick. God remembering is about him springing into action and moving his will and his purposes on behalf of his people. And the point in this passage is that there's no amount of trickery There's no amount of deception. There's no amount of human antics or human resources or human will that brings about God's plans and purposes. All of it depends on God and his grace. How will his people have a future? Where will hope be found? Is God there and does God care? What does it rely upon? All of it rests in God remembering. In God acting for the sake of his people. It's interesting, isn't it, in in the Bible and in Christian thinking, we want God to remember some things and we want him really not to remember other things. It would be great if God could not remember my sin. 
But I really need God to remember his promises. And in the economy of salvation, that's exactly what he does. This is Psalm 25. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, Lord, for you are good. Remember me, Lord, for you are good. The only hope that people have is that God would remember his promises and act. When Jesus is crucified on that first Good Friday, what is it that one of the thieves on the cross, as everyone mocks and spits, what is it that one of the thieves on the cross says to Jesus as they're both about to breathe their final breaths? Where is the hope going to be found, the comfort, the certainty for an eternal future beyond this life? Jesus, remember me, the thief says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The only hope for God's people, for barren Rachel, is that God would remember that he would apply his sovereign mind and will and direct his grace in her direction. In verse 31, the key thing that Leah was unloved, Rachel remained childless. And the writer here directs our gaze in verse 22 to the resolution of this great promise of problem. That Rachel is childless and requires God to remember. He takes the initiative. He acts first. He remembers and then she prays. He remembers and then she prays. That's important to get your head around. It's not that she jumped up and down enough to get God's attention. It's not that she had gone through enough of the motions and pressed enough of the right buttons to get the right result. It is that God acted, he remembers, he takes the initiative. And as he does that, she then prays. She calls upon the Lord. He listens to her prayer and enables her to conceive. And so here she is, giving birth to Joseph, the one and only son from her in this passage. Later she'll have Benjamin. But this picture of Joseph being the answer to God's remembering, God acting, it's a very, uh, it's a repeated pattern, isn't it? God steps in for the barren and the helpless. And he comes close to bring about miraculous birth to promote his promises and his purposes in the world. He does that time and time and time again. He lifts up the humble. He brings about the reversal. He enables miraculous childbearing in order to bring about his plans and purposes. And so when we get to the New Testament, and he does that once again when the Lord Jesus is is born through a teenage virgin Mary. It's not totally unprecedented. It's new. It's different. It's spectacular. It's not totally unheard of in the way God acts, in the way God works throughout history. 
And here at the end of chapter 30, in the middle of chapter 30, at the end of our section, as God remembers Rachel and we see Joseph being born, we have a little mini picture of like when Jesus is born to Mary. As Joseph himself, the miraculous child, will end up being the saviour of his clan. He will be a rescuer. Just like the Lord Jesus. But Joseph also forms this kind of turning point for Jacob. Because it's now after Joseph is born that Jacob will start to send his attention back to the promised land. To return to the land of his fathers. To go back to Bethlehem. This is a turning point in the book of Genesis and in salvation history. As God once again Shows love to the loveless. He comes close to the brokenhearted. He lifts up the humble. He works in the midst of mess, in the midst of minutiae, to show that he cares, to show that he's there, to show that he will bring about his plans and purposes. And when we land in Luke chapter 1, When the angel says to Mary, you will give birth to a son and he will be a saviour. This is what she says. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. For he has been mindful, he's remembered the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Is God there? Yes. And he comes close to the brokenhearted and the downcast. Does God care? Yes. And he works even through mess and minutia to bring about his plans and purposes. He sees, he gives, he remembers. And so for you and I, as we consider how God has done this, as we think about our worldview and the big answers to those important questions, what is our only hope in life and death? Like the thief on the cross, that Jesus remembers us. And like that thief, we need to cast ourselves on his mercy, knowing that he cares. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way in which he was born in poverty and died in shame. In order to remove from us our sins, that you would remember them no more but that you would remember to be merciful to your people 
and to finish your plans and purposes. We thank you that we can give a resounding yes to that question, are you there and do you care? We thank you that you've shown us that so often, so consistently, and so marvellously in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.